0: We both like the win. We both detested getting beat.
1: the love affairs have had plenty because
2: we've been with some tremendous football clubs.
0: There was nothing else at all
2: in the whole world but football. Welcome to Merseyside Legends. The tales and tapes with John Keith.
3: Callaghan out to Highway on the near side. Callaghan still running, making the overlap down the right. Highway cutting inside, trying to get it on his left foot. A great ball to McDermott. The shot, and McDermott has got it. Liverpool one. By- Gladbach nil. Oh, a great move, inspired by McDermott, carried on by Callaghan, and finished off clinically by Terry McDermott. Corner then for Liverpool, chipping it in, hit it uh, low and hard. There, Smith. Oh, Oh, it's Tommy Smith. 2-1 to Liverpool. Well, fairy tales don't come more extraordinary than this. Tommy Smith, his 600th game for Liverpool, his last game for Liverpool and he could have won the european cup for them keegan though takes on votes and beats him keegan still going could he get the shot in it's a penalty folks well it, that was inevitable the way verdi volks has been marking kevin keegan and it's a penalty bill Neal against wolfgang neeb eight minutes to go in the european cup final here he goes right footed it's there neil has made it 3-1 liverpool have won the european
2: cup surely. it was the moment liverpool football club and their fans had dreamed of ever since continental competitions began the sight of the team from anfield being crowned kings of europe on the night of may the 25th 1977 it became wonderful reality for the traveling cop with a 3-1 win over borussia Mönchengladbach in rome's olympic stadium and the man who masterminded it, Bob Paisley, sat in a cardigan at the Team's Hotel, sipping lemonade, as riotous celebrations were
0: happening all
2: around him.
0: I just wanted to say that at the moment, uh, you know, that, that doesn't come often, and it was the first time the, the club had won the, the cup, and uh, that was something special. But. Uh, I wasn't begrudging them, but I wanted to have all my faculties about it and, and, and remember the, you know, the day and <laughs> what had been done. You know, inwardly I was drunk, but I didn't take a drink for the simple reason I just wanted to savor every moment. The thing that pleased me most was that uh, Rome was a place that, that I'd been to during the war and and that, and they had a particular fancy for the the whole city and that and the, the setting of the game and, and the weather, uh, the, the supporters they'd gone out there to enjoy themselves and the, they were immaculate in the behavior and the, and the game and the performance that we did to win it. It was recognized throughout Europe and that had to be the, the best moment of my life.
2: After retaining the league title, his side's FA Cup final defeat by Manchester United four days before Rome had ended their treble hopes. But the team's feat in shrugging off that setback to claim the biggest European prize thrilled Paisley as he spoke proudly in the dressing room within minutes of the final whistle. It uh,
0: was not just tremendous. You, you know, words, words, fear me. I've got Voice, but uh, tremendous. After coming off Wembley like they did and then to put a show like that, tremendous. I think we did really proud tonight. I said we would, and I think we did. There's nothing wrong with British football, only our finish This is the only thing that's wrong with it, because if they want to play patient in that, we should do this with them and that. And there's nothing at all wrong with our football. I've said this all along.
2: Paisley even managed a smile reflecting on the treble that wasn't to be.
0: It was possibly on, I mean, in fairness, we played West Ham on the Saturday, then we played uh, the cup final the next Saturday, and then we played on the Wednesday, the European Cup. So in, in a matter of 10, 11 days, we'd had to play the three games. Mm-hmm. This is what people weren't getting, at, and this is why I rang a bookie and said, well, I'll give you <laughs> 10,000 to 1,000, like, if you, if you wanted it. Uh And I don't know where I got the 10,000 from, but.
2: (laughs) Some 27,000 Liverpool fans travelled to the Eternal City for the final, including other members of the Paisley family, as Bob's wife Jessie recalled.
4: The two boys went. They went by train, and my daughter in law. And. uh, I took them down to the station so I saw all the excitement of the night when they were all setting, when all the trains were pushing off there. And uh, I remember saying to my daughter in law when she came back, What was the journey now? she said, Long, and I never want to eat another cheese or cracker in my life. I couldn't go because I was teaching, and Bob didn't ask me to go because he knew I was as committed to teaching as he was to football. So. I stayed at home with my other daughter-in-law, and, uh, and we watched at night and shouted at the television instead.
2: <laughs> Many in the Liverpool camp felt that the aftermath of the FA Cup defeat by Manchester United sowed the seeds of triumph in Rome, even as the players sat crestfallen in the Wembley dressing room. Here's Captain Emlyn Hughes.
5: When I just sat there, Absolutely dead as a dodo, heads down. And Ray Clements just jumped up and he turned around. and he says, Well, I don't know about you, he said, but I'm gonna get absolutely d du- 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 tonight. <laughs> Meaning he was gonna get very drunk. <laughs> and you can imagine what he said. And, uh, and that just broke the atmosphere and he runs straight through the dressing room and he dived in the bath and that that second broke the duck, broke the atmosphere, and I knew we were gonna win the European Cup after that.
2: British Rail also unwittingly strengthened the mental fortification process for the Liverpool squad. The club's 7.45pm chartered train from Watford was delayed for almost two hours en route back to Merseyside, due to a broken down train and that extra time on board worked wonders for team spirit and morale, as Steve Highway remembers.
5: It was a riot, and we just lost the FA Cup final. And I can remember, in particular, a, a mammoth sugar fight on the, on the, in a compartment on the, on the train. I mean, in those days, it used to be the little wrapped cubes of sugar, and we got this crazy sugar fight going between wives, players and everything. Not the sort of classical reaction to just having lost an FA Cup final, but we, we really were in great shape.
2: Paisley confirmed the beneficial impact of the delay saying normally you'd be angry about a delay like that but in our case it was a positive thing. The players let their hair down and by the time we got to Lime Street around midnight did well and truly got Wembley out of this system. When Paisley arrived back at his Woolton home he did two things. He poured himself a glass of whiskey and picked the team for Rome. So this is how Liverpool lined up for the biggest game in their history. Ray Clements in goal, a back four of Phil Neal, Tommy Smith, Emlyn Hughes and Joey Jones, a midfield comprising Jimmy Case, Terry McDermott, Ian Callaghan and Ray Kennedy, with Steve Highway partnering Kevin Keegan up front. For Highway, no more as a winger, playing down the middle was a job he relished.
5: I used to enjoy those European days when Bob Paisley used to say to me, just go play up front, just just run, just move, keep mobile, take people off Kevin, come back and help a little bit when you, when you need to. And I, I enjoyed not having a direct confrontation with a right back, because through, through a first division season, it's, it's left winger against right back, and that, there's a bit of pressure in that. Playing up front you can go and try and find a soft centre somewhere you can keep
6: probing around till you find a bit of success.
2: The five substitutes for Liverpool, remarkably none of them used by Paisley on the night, were reserve keeper Peter MacDonald, David Johnson, Alan Waddle, Alec Lindsay and David Fairclough. Fairclough, the prototype supersur had played a starring role in getting Liverpool to Rome with one of Anfield's all-time magical goals to overcome Saint-Étienne in the quarter-final second leg. With the aggregate at 2-2 and the French visitors set to go through on the now scrapped away goal rule, Faircliffe was sent on as a 73rd-minute substitute for Toshak with the simple instruction from Paisley to just run at them. Here's Elton Wellesby telling Radio City listeners how Fairclough sent Liverpool through, followed by Super Sub himself telling us what he did.
3: And it really does look at the moment this time he's going to beat Liverpool. Time and the away goal rule. Larké turning it in, Hervé Rivelli's there. Tommy Smith wins the aerial duel and Jimmy Case gets it away down the middle. Too many long balls, I feel, by Liverpool. Too many hopeful balls at the moment. There's another one from Kennedy, but that could break for Fairclough, in fact. And it does Faircliff going through, and he scores! Oh, baby Fairclough!
7: Has put Liverpool shortly in the semi-finals! Oh, and the place has gone star-raving mad! Just look at these scenes! Kennedy, who got the second, puts it through to Fairclough, the substitute. And super sub takes it on and shoots it low under Kirkovic. It's 3 1. And the drama at Anfield is quite, quite unbelievable. Oh, Liverpool, don't lose your heads now.
5: I've gone up with the big centre half Lopez, and I remember him sort of trying to tug my arm back, and I was sort of like shrugging him off and, you know, let go of me, let me have a go, you know. And he wouldn't, so I had to uh, shrug him off. I showed a little bit of force. I wasn't aware of what it meant to everybody. I was just, had to say, well, I've got to get a shot in on goal here. I remember, and I can honestly say this, I remember saying to myself, just get it on target. Don't be clever, just get it on target. And that's what I did, kept it low.
2: The noise in Rome's Olympic Stadium as kickoff to the final approached had a distinct Mersey sound as Captain Lemlin Hughes discovered.
5: And when we walked out with five minutes to go I mean. There was no way we could have lost. It was impossible. I I can't remember a a chant of Munch and Gladbach. I mean, it was just every part of the stadium, apart from one little pocket, was just a mass of red and white.
2: In the dressing room, Bob gave a bizarre but inspiring team talk. He told his players, the last time I was in Rome was on the back of a tank in the Second World War when we entered the liberated city. I helped beat the Germans then, so you go out and do it again." With Bob's legendary predecessor, Bill Shankly, watching as a guest of the club, Liverpool swept into their task with gusto and were ahead through McDermott in 28 minutes, shortly after Rainer Bonhoeff had crushed a shot against Clemence's post. It remained at 1-0 until half-time but a brilliant strike by Danish winger Alan Simonsen equalised after 51 minutes and only a superb Clemens save from Uli Stieliger denied Borussia the lead but it proved to be the turning point. From Highway 64th minute left flank corner Tommy Smith headed Liverpool back in front on his 600th appearance. The finishing on the cake in Rome was provided by the energy of Kevin Keegan, playing his 323rd and final Liverpool game before joining Hamburg. Throughout the game, he tormented his marker and friend, Bertie Volks. With eight minutes left, Keegan set off on yet another run, aiming for his 101st Liverpool goal only to be sent sprawling by the German defender, with French referee Robert Verts instantly pointing to the spot. Here's Keegan talking about their battle in Rome.
0: He tried to pull my shirt off after about four minutes. I remember saying to him, you know, Norbert, I said, in England we changed shirts after the game. Um, and at halftime, when he was coming up the tunnel, I said, you know, do you want to come in this dressing room or are you going your own? I had a great rapport with him. Uh, which, to this day, is still there.
2: As the penalty was being taken, Ian Callaghan, the only player to appear in the old second division for Liverpool and progress to the European Cup final, squatted with his back to the action, his hands clasped in prayer. Well, if he couldn't pray in Rome, when could he? When Callie turned round, Neil had calmly beaten giant keeper Wolfgang Nieb to make it 11 out of 11 successful penalties for that season and admitted he changed his usual direction of his kick, saying, I assumed that as my previous penalties had been televised around Europe and the keeper had no doubt done his homework, I decided to put my kick into the opposite corner. And with need being so big i'd keep it low he went the wrong way the ball hit the net and i knew we'd won the european cup
3: eight minutes to go in the european cup final here he goes right-footed it's there has made it 3-1 liverpool have won
2: a European cup, Watching back home in Liverpool, Bob's wife Jessie observed that even her usually calm and collected husband had been moved by the occasion.
4: The main one I remember was the unusual um, picture of Bob jumping up and waving his arms in the air, which is most unusual for him, but that was, I think, that was when, um, I don't know whether it was with Tommy Smith's header or when they did the penalty, it was one of those two, Then when they practically knew they'd won.
2: That night, Liverpool's hotel, the Holiday in St Peter's, was awash with champagne and singing, players jumping and being thrown into the swimming pool. Bob Paisley sat up late sipping his lemonade while Chief Executive Peter Robinson repaired to his room and sat on the balcony, looking out over the city, taking stock of what the team had achieved. As the dawn was breaking over Rome, I sat there, said Peter, and thought, here we are, a club from a city that's got so many economic, social and employment problems, a club that's not rolling in money compared to some, and yet we'd become champions of Europe. It was quite moving to contemplate just what we'd done. If the triumph in Rome was the crown on Bob Paisley, the manager, there were more diamonds to be set upon it. A year later, with the arrival of Kenny Dalglish, again proving the doom mongers wrong when they said Liverpool would never replace Keegan, the great Scots only goal of the final against Bruges at Wembley, ensured Liverpool became the first English club to retain the trophy. Bill Shankly was part of Radio City's commentary team that night to record Dalglish's great strike.
7: But Turbot on the right-hand byline, chipped in towards Dalglish near post, overhead kick, headed clear, only as far as edge as entered the penalty area. Tries to make shooting space, might break for Kenny Dalglish, Tips it in, 1-0. Kenny Dalglish scores for Liverpool. His 31st goal of the season, he hurdles the advertising barriers and goes to the ecstatic. pressure for the entire game 65 minutes gone and liverpool are in front and kenny dalgleish is the scorer Bill shankley what about that well possibly the coming on of stevie fighting the the bruise boys took some effect on them you know steve highway hasn't had a kick he's been on the field 30 seconds and liverpool are one nil in front 80,000 Liverpool fans rise to Liverpool, they've won the European Cup final again, a second consecutive year, they've done it by one goal to nil against FC Bruges, and Kenny Dalglish is their scorer, Phil Shankly shaking hands with many well-wishers, Phil what a proud moment for everybody concerned with Liverpool. Oh it is, and this was no easy game, Liverpool had to work hard to win, and they did that, they've given Bruges a wonderful reception too. I mean, they must be saying, well, this is a fantastic crowd, which, of course, they are. So that the whole of, not only
0: Merseyside,
2: but the whole of England's behind Liverpool tonight. And here's Dal Glish, later Sir Kenny, and twice manager of Liverpool, talking about joining the club from Celtic.
5: Obviously, I was aware of Kevin. I think everybody was aware of Kevin Keegan. And uh, totally respectful what Kevin had done for Liverpool Football Club. But Kevin had chosen to move on. Someone had to fill his place, and if I wanted to come and play for for Liverpool Football Club, um, I was going to come and play. It didn't matter what, what had gone in front of us. I felt as if I would be comfortable coming here. In the five-minute conversation I had with Bob and, and John Smith, uh, the chairman, that only endorsed what I thought. Um, there was no problem coming to to the city because it was, it was similar to what the people of Glasgow are. There's a great sense of humour. There's a great bond between the Scousers and the Glaswegians. But I wasn't here to to follow Kevin's boots. I had my own pair of boots to wear and I had my own job to do.
0: When Kenny's taken over in that He'll have about five options, people move as always say, oh, Kenny's got it, I've got a chance of getting it. And this is happening in, in about five or six positions in that. And that he's able to do that, and not only able to do that, he'll sort the best position out. It's that natural ability that, that he's got. He just gets on with the job, a man that I look up to simply because of his attitude he wants to play football
2: a year after beating bruges paisley celebrated another league title which they retained in 1979-80 clinched with a 4-1 home win over aston villa notable for avi cohen scoring for both sides an own goal in the first half and a liverpool goal in the second left back Cohen had been signed for £200,000 from Maccabee Tel Aviv a year earlier. And shortly after Cohen's arrival, Paisley received an unusual telephone call from the Jewish Chronicle, as he revealed.
0: It was quite true, the chap rang from uh, Manchester and uh, he's from the Manchester Chronicle or something, uh, a Jewish paper, and well, that's what he said anyway. He said, had I signed I'll be And I said, "Yes." And uh, he said, "Is he Orthodox Jew?" So I said, "Oh, I wouldn't know anything about that." I said, "I don't bother about, you know, religion and that." But uh, I said, "What if he was an or, uh, uh, Orthodox Jew?" Oh, he said, "Well, he can't play on a Saturday." <laughs> so I said, "Well, I've got five or six <laughs> of them now." So. <laughs>
2: The following season of 1980-81 saw Paisley land the double of League Cup and European Cup, the third time in five seasons he lifted Europe's greatest prize. The final was in Paris and the opposition, Real Madrid. The fact that the game was settled by the only goal of the match from Alan Kennedy Turn back the clock for Paisley, who knew Kennedy's mother when they were both youngsters in County Durham, prior to World War II. Alan tells the story.
8: My mother used to remind me of the fact that um, she lived in a certain part of Hetton, and uh, she was one of seven daughters. And uh, she worked in the local fish and chip shop. And she used to tell me that um, she used to get some important people who used to come in and um, order their fish and chips. And one of those important people, as they say in those days, was Bob Paisley. And Bob was um, always coming in for his fish and chips. Now I'm not sure whether he only wanted fish and chips because he, um, I think he must have had eyes for either my mother or my auntie and uh, I wasn't quite sure which one he fancied, whether it was the older one or the younger one. I mean, my mother's family were very much into football. You know, I think it was an an important part of, um, I I suppose, uh, the community, was to play football, and Bob was playing for his local team, so uh, my mother probably went along to watch him. My mother had just died when, actually, I left and and, and went to uh, Liverpool, so, you know, she was... She would be very proud of me, the fact that I went to play for Liverpool, but Bob probably knew what sort of a person I was, knowing my family, and um, he decided to splash out all that money. I mean, it goes back, as, as you quite rightly said, to the 1930s and uh, all the way through to the 1970s. And, uh, you know, I, I always felt Bob Paisley was like uh, a father figure to me. He was the type of typical northeasterner who'd worked very, very hard and who would always have time to speak to you. I think he, lo- he looked at the character of the person, first of all, and my, my mother, um, said, wouldn't it be nice, on a few occasions, wouldn't it be nice to play uh, for Bob Paisley? And I often thought about that, and when the when the offer came in, uh, not only from Liverpool, but it was not from Leeds United as well, they were interested in taking me there. Um, there was only one place that I wanted to go.
2: While most of the players and wives headed for the Paris night spots after the match, Paisley and his boot-room colleagues sat digesting the match in Bob's hotel room, as Graham soonest discovered.
6: Paris is a lively city at the best of times, but when the European Champions Finals were taking place, it was even lively. It was full of Liverpool supporters. It was a big international city anyway, but there was lots to do afterwards. and As with all the cup finals, the wives would be invited. Well, <clears throat> my wife and Alan Hansen's wife, they were both pregnant, so they didn't travel to Paris. So we were staying in the hotel. The rest of the boys were going out to one of the famous nightclubs there with the dancers, and they took the trophy with them. So Alan and I, once we had something to eat, we were just hanging around the hotel, and there was a few supporters hanging around the hotel. So we disappeared upstairs, and we ended up in, in Bob's room. And um, Bob, along with Joe and Ronnie, were sitting there. Bob had a an old sweater on, had a couple of stains on it, and he had his slippers on because he had a problem with his ankles. His ankles, I think, from his playing days... Were a problem to him. They always appeared to be swollen. He was complaining about them, and then um, he was sitting there with a scotch in a dimly lit room, and um, that was his idea of celebrating. I mean, it wasn't any big deal. It was just another cup, and I think that night brought it home to me that how high his ambitions were. You know, I wonder, European Cup, but we can do better than this?
2: Mark Lawrence had a similar experience of Bob's predilection for a woolly cardigan and slippers when he signed for Liverpool three months after the Paris triumph in a £900,000 move from Brighton.
5: I signed very late on a, on a Friday night after a, a journey back up from um, from the Aerial Hotel in London with with Bob, the old Chairman Sir John Smith, Peter Robinson, Jimmy Case actually was in the car and the driver and we drove back and it wasn't the greatest of conversations I've ever had in a car journey and I, I so sort I've of had a semi medical on late on the Friday night and I stayed at the Atlantic Tower on this on the Friday night and he picked me up the next morning Bob at nine o'clock. And I was suited and booted, and it was like a big deal for me. And he turned up in his cardigan and his slippers. right? And this was the manager of, of the football club, probably the, the, the best in Europe at the time. And I just couldn't believe it. It was like... Um your granddad was the manager of the team, and yet, in the nicest possible way, he, he was such a knowledgeable guy, and such a nice fella. And um, I mean, it, it was like a father to you, and yet he knew all the time he was a manager, and he had the greatest respect from all the players. And when you consider at the time, I mean, they had some fantastic players there at Liverpool, but they had the utmost respect for him.
2: Fittingly. Bob Paisley left the managerial stage with another league title and League Cup double in 1982-83, ending a journey beyond fantasy. When he was finally persuaded by Robinson and Smith to take the job, he told the players at his first team talk, ''I'm only here till they get a proper manager.'' I think 19 trophies in nine seasons more than qualifies Bob Paisley as a proper manager. His judgment of football talent, his tactical astuteness, his medical knowledge came in quantities beyond most people who have the word manager on their office door. So we'll end this podcast with four of his greatest signings talking about Bob's qualities, beginning with Mark Lawrenson on his genius for diagnosing
5: injuries. The famous Trevor Francis story, isn't it? when, he, when he'd, he'd been to watch Trevor Francis playing for Nottingham Forest and just said, he's injured or he'll get an injury soon because of the way he runs. And sure enough, he, he got a serious injury and it was amazing. And uh, again, he was, I suppose, a bit like, like Bill Shankly, that he'd come in the treatment room and he wouldn't really say a lot to you when you're lying there injured. And he'd just, you kind of, you'd sense this fella looking at you thinking, I know exactly how long you're going to be out for, and you're thinking, you know, it might be alright by Saturday and stuff. And he used to have the famous, if somebody had a hamstring or a, or a strain, he'd just like, kind of look at it and go, 10 day Which meant that you were out for a minimum of 10 days, and there was no way you could possibly be rushed back beforehand.
2: And here's Alan Hansen beginning his tribute to Bob by saluting his remarkable conversion of Ray Kennedy from a League and Cup double-winning striker with Arsenal. To so a left side midfielder praised throughout Europe.
1: Well, I think that was one of the best moves of all time to, to put Ray into the left hand side of the midfield. Nobody would ever ever thought a centre forward could have played there, but Bob must have witnessed something that he thought, right, he can play in this position, and and Ray Kenny in that position was unbelievable for Liverpool because right the way through the the late seventies and, and all the and when he played in the Aces. That position was was vital for Liverpool the way they played because they were, they were top heavy in the right hand side with Case and McDermott or Samueline McDermott, and in the left hand side you needed somebody that could patrol that area and get up and down and and the thing about Ray was he was he was fantastic there, so anything coming that area he'd he'd always win it and um, I think again going back to if you ever thought a centre forward like Ray Kennedy could play that position. You you would say well no you're off your head you can't play that but Bob saw something and and played him and and I think that he turned it one of not only one of the best players that that Liverpool had in that position but a magnificent you know reverse of positions that that and you you count over the last 25 years how many how many players have played in one position and been switched successfully to a position that was alien to them I
6: don't think you'd, you'd count money.
2: Graham Sooners, too, was glowing in his appraisal of Paisley.
6: Without a doubt, the most knowledgeable footballing person I've ever come across. For he was a man, man of few words. But when he did speak and the things he spoke about, I mean, I worked with him for, what, six years. And, you know, to say I learned a great deal from him would be correct. But I think it was the way in which he got things across. You know, the way in which he made his point. If you upset him, two or three people who did upset him, and um, they didn't stay at the club for very long after that. He knew mm-hmm. who we were taking a mic out of him, And I don't think he minded that too much. But if someone upset him deeply, then I, th- I think he remembered that forever.
2: And completing a hat-trick of great Scots, Sir Kenny Dalglish pays his tribute to Bob.
6: It's certainly the way he treated me. Um, he was superb. and I just like to think that he's trying to treat people the way that he treated me. As I say, uh, I said... Uh, a while ago that he's probably the greatest debt that I owe to anyone in football, it's Bob. Um, I don't see why I should change that.
2: It is highly unlikely we'll ever see a football man like Bob Paisley ever again. And like all those players who are grateful to have played for him, I'm grateful for having known him and reported on his great deeds. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and keep listening to more in this series, Merseyside Legends with John Keith. So from me, John Keith, and our producer, Ollie Cowan, goodbye.